You know, I've said a few times in uh, environments like this that these vision talks, we call them, um, can sometimes be kind of boring. And I need to warn you that that has nothing to do with the provider of the talk, so hold your comments. Uh, it actually, as we've discussed from time to time, has more to do with the nature of these kinds of talks. See, when we gather in environments like this for vision days or vision nights and hear vision talks to kind of clarify the direction that we sense God leading, because the direction that we sense God leading is so kind of long-term and so consistent for entire eras of our church that, you know, these vision talks that we have, you know, once or twice a year, they don't change a whole lot. And it often results in kind of saying the same thing, trying to find a different way to say it, people kind of feeling a little bit like they've been there, done that, and maybe even got the t-shirt. Because the vision that God gives us typically lasts an era, lasts years, sometimes even decades. Which is what excites me about today because lately we've been getting the sense that God has been leading us as a community into kind of the dawn of a brand new era. And so today I'm excited because this morning we get to have kind of a, kind of a fresh conversation that we haven't had so much uh, in years past. Because we sense that you know, God is leading us into a fresh era where he wants to do some new kind of really creative and cool things among us. And the only constant, I feel like, between this new era and era's past, and I'll, I'll warn us from the start, is that we sense that once again, like in past eras, what God wants to do is widen our hearts. That this next era, as we sense God leading us in the direction that we sense, um, we feel like this is a heart-widening era like never before. If you're new around here, I thought maybe we'd just spend a couple minutes to describe some of the previous eras so you can understand what I mean. Because there was a day, kind of way back when, where this community was a little country church who was widening its heart to a group of people that I'm going to call the next generation. That, that was an era that our church found itself in. In fact, that, that's why our church started back in 1980. It was founded on the value of kind of investing and building into the next generation in hopes that the children of the founding families would grow up knowing and loving and ultimately wanting to serve Jesus Christ. And that era of vision that God gave those founding families kind of came to fruition when a few of those children were then entrusted with the leadership of the church. And just last Sunday was the 18-year anniversary of the hiring of Mike Krause and myself, who along with Chris Fowler and a number of other kind of founding families and, and longtime children of the church, you know, were able to be involved in the actual leadership of it. I was the beneficiary of that era of the life of our church as other people opened their hearts beyond themselves wide enough to make investments in people like me. And then at that point, we kind of entered into a bit of a different era with a bit of a different focus, this time specifically around people who were really unacquainted with 
a relationship with Jesus Christ or faith, what we referred to them as were the unchurched. People who were uninvolved or unassociated with a, with a church community. And you need to understand that you know, a church like ours came from a background where we understood the church to be kind of distinct from society. Almost like sequestered. You know, it was sort of a be in this world but not of it. So, you know, we behaved in kind of a segregated way from the rest of society. But in this era, God was opening our hearts wider to people in our neighborhoods and in our classes and at our workplaces, appreciating that people outside of faith, people outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ, we were learning, they mattered to God a whole lot. And because they mattered to God a whole lot, they ought to matter to us. And so we kind of revolutionized things and we made all kinds of changes to our ministry model and to the programs that we offered, and the style in which we offered them and the music and the, the language we used and all kinds of things so that people who were formerly unchurched and unassociated with the dynamics of faith in Jesus Christ could kind of graft in and experience that for themselves. And today, some of you are the beneficiaries of that era. You're, you're the beneficiaries of a church community in whom God you know, opened and stretched and expanded their hearts to include and to be a blessing to you. Well then, you know, I'm sure some of you know, know the story from there that, you know, as we felt like things were going up and to the right, we were at the same time haunted by this question that if our community all of a sudden disappeared, would anyone in our surrounding society really notice? Were we really making a difference in the needs in the part of the world where God placed us? And so that next era started to sensitize us to issues of compassion and justice and to people in poverty the poor and the marginalized and you know in that era God did some really radical things he relocated our church community moved us to the outskirts of downtown St. Catharines I'm really blistering through this history but you know opened up a 24 7 365 day a year homeless shelter in that facility and then spawned off replica communities in other parts of Niagara as we became what's called multi-site sometimes in partnership with other churches that wanted to join in and each of these sites then had shelter-like equivalents that we now call anchor causes. And in addition to, to those, we partnered with Compassion and now are able to have what we call a global anchor cause of child survival. Where as at one church across all our locations, we can invest and make a difference in the global poor, not just in the local poor through the initiatives of our, of our anchor causes. And again, some of you here today are the product and the beneficiary of that era of the life of our church. The era where God gave us that kind of nuance of his vision and focused on widening our hearts toward people, you know, kind of on the margins, the, the, the poor and the excluded. And you're here today because you enjoy that community that widened their hearts to you. You know, every time, for years, even decades, God would kind of define these eras for us where we would focus on, you know, making a different kind of difference and allowing them to make a different kind of difference in our lives. And every time, it was a heart-widening experience again and again and again. And what we're sensing these days is that yet again, 
God wants to do this very same thing. The same thing, but in a lot of ways to a, to a different audience, to kind of a distinct audience. And we're going to talk a lot about this this morning. These days, we're sensing that God wants to widen our hearts beyond anywhere he's ever widened us to people who think differently than us. People I'm going to describe of different beliefs. The group of people we're sensing God wants us to to grow in loving and serving and reaching are, are people who actually see the world differently than us. We're going to talk about that this morning. Um, if you stop and think about it, there really are two reasons that a person would you know, kind of think differently about life and faith and, and things like that. One would be because they have a different perspective based on their background. You know, they come from a different cultural background or a different family dynamic, a different upbringing. And, and as a result, they see the world differently than you do. And they believe different things about, about life and faith. It reminds me, as an example, of a time I was talking to one of my neighbors who used to be a track coach at one of the area high schools. And so I've known him since I was involved in uh, track and field at the high school level. And we were talking about the latest Niagara region running sensation. A guy by the name of Muhammad Ahmed. He affectionately goes by the name Mo. And uh, recently, if you follow him at all, he's unbelievable. Mo was competing in the World Track and Field Championships a couple weeks ago in Beijing. He made the final of the 5,000 meters, and he posted the best finish ever by a Canadian. Unbelievable. Finished 12th. Way to go, Mo. The interesting part about the conversation, though, that I had with this track coach, who was the coach and high school uh, teacher at the high school that Mo attended when he lived in St. Catharines, is he described Mo not just as a spectacular runner, he described him as a spectacular person. And he said he was so impressed with the integrity of Mo's life and his commitment to his Islamic faith that this coach was actually motivated to start reading the Quran for himself. I want to call a timeout. I want to ask you honestly, as a follower of Jesus, how would you engage in that conversation at that point? Would there be part of you that would hear in the back of your mind the words of Jesus that described himself as the way, the truth, and the life and said that no one comes to the Father but through him? Would you hear Jesus saying, you know, if you're not for me, you're actually against me, and would there be some disequilibrium in the pit of your gut because of that? Or would you hear the word of Jesus where in other accounts of the Gospels has said, if you're not against me, you're actually for me, and maybe feel like God might be up to something, tweaking some spiritual interest in this neighbor of mine through someone who came from a very different background than someone like me. I'll tell you, you know, as I was talking to this coach, it made me wonder, you know, first of all, about the impact that, that I was having on him. We'd known each other for a number of years. But, but more than that, whether, you know, if I came from a family born and, and moved to Canada from Somalia, whether I would believe anything different than Mo. And it started to make me wonder how, how we can learn to relate to people who are bringing different viewpoints about life and faith and issues of God and spirituality because they come from different backgrounds than us. 
In addition to that, I think that you know, there are times where people think differently because they come from different backgrounds. There are also times where people think differently because who come from the same background. They think differently because having reflected on things and studied and considered, they've actually made different choices about things than you have. They've developed different convictions. So there are people you know, who have different cultural backgrounds, but also people of different convictions. Reminds me of a time where uh, I was invited out to lunch by uh, what I'm going to refer to as a gay man. It's more than that, but at the time, that's in a sense all he was to me. Um, years ago, uh, I did a sermon here uh, that we called Church Eye for the Queer Guy. You can probably find it online if you want to watch it. But uh, in response to this message, a church member of ours forwarded it to a friend of theirs who happened to be gay, and they were so intrigued by it that they wanted to get together for lunch and talk more about it. You know, just the two of us. And I got to tell you, I was a little uneasy because you know, relevant information, not only was this person gay, um, they were also very politically active. They had run for office a number of times. They had encouraged a number of other political candidates. They were kind of involved in that arena. And at the time, they were uh, somewhat outspoken on certain opinions. They were, they were actually, they had a voice as a, as a newspaper columnist on some occasion in our local newspaper. And so I, I knew that this person, you know, possessed all kinds of opinions. What I didn't know that I found out after is that they even had very strong convictions about issues of faith, so strong that they'd written a book called J.C. and Me describing their faith journey and their kind of construct on how their understanding of Jesus worked. And, and this was the person that I was going to be get, getting together to have lunch with. Now again, I'll call a timeout and ask you, you know, if that was an invitation for you, what would you do? You know, would there be part of you that thinks, you know, maybe you should just send them the link to a YouTube video of Westboro Baptist holding up picket signs protesting the LGBT community and explaining, you know, that's why people who profess to be Christians don't, you know, hang out with LGBTQ. Or, or instead, would you, you know, do a crash course on everything you can learn about what the Bible says about same gender attraction and about the definition of marriage so that you can prepare to go toe to toe in a really passionate argument? Or, would you just go for lunch with the guy and listen to their story and get to know them and hear their heart and try to understand their perspective and try to make sense of, of why they believe what they believe and actually try to curiously learn from them? Would you look for commonality to try to build bridges and to try to see what, what binds you together in a common desire to make a difference in the world and where God's placed you? How, how would you respond to someone who thinks differently about issues of faith and spirituality than perhaps you do? Those are a couple examples from my world, but we got to acknowledge that we get into these environments all the time. We get into them in our classrooms and with our professors and teachers and, you know, in our workplaces with our coworkers and our supervisors and on the schoolyard with, with, you know, parents of our kids' friends and in the neighborhood at the mailbox and whatever and you know, whether it's religion or, you know, politics, it can be all kinds of stuff. You can disagree about education. You can disagree about diet and food and, you know, vegan or not. You can disagree about parenting and, you know, homeschooling or post-secondary. You can disagree about unions or employers. All kinds of, 
you know, different beliefs about life and faith and, and how the world works. All kinds of ways that you can disagree with other people about things that you think. The question is, how do you relate to that group of people? What I want us to think about today in, in really appreciating this is that this group of people in a lot of ways is fundamentally different than any other group of people that we've sensed God wanting us as a church to expand our hearts to focus on. This group of people is fundamentally different because if you think about it, in each of these last eras of the life of our church, each of these group of, each of these group of people were opened up in the hearts of the existing group of people in order to include them in being part of us. The founding families included the next generation so that together we as an us would lead and build the church for the future. You know, those that we were becoming sensitized to that were outside of a faith experience were ultimately, you know, being related to and loved and, and shared with the message of Jesus so that, as the Bible says, we could make disciples and include people in this church experience together to help you know, grow them into becoming like us. Same with this last era, as we've become friends with the poor and the excluded. We've been able to engage in all kinds of unlikely friendships as we've been able to, as a church family, provide a family for people who often don't know one or don't know one well. And every time we've kind of expanded our hearts or allowed God to expand our hearts so that we could include people in becoming like us, what's so different here and what kind of creates a, a, a wider chasm here is that because of these divergent and sometimes even polarized and incongruent or, or you know, incompatible beliefs, people in this world are actually in no danger of ever becoming part of us. Their, their belief system is so diametrically opposed that they're in no danger of becoming like us, so to speak. And so the question is, how do you relate differently to that group of people? How do you, how do you relate differently to a group of people that may have no you know, hope in that sense or no possibility of being sort of converted to thinking like you? No, this is a very different type of heart expansion, a very different type of relating. Frankly, it's a very different type of love because it's a love that's not dependent ultimately on a person growing and developing to the point where they're going to share your views. It's a love that is actually not contingent on. It's not conditional on the sharing of views. I would describe it as a love beyond belief. And the question is, can we grow to the place where we develop a love beyond belief for people who do not share our belief system? You know, as you're thinking about that, I want you to appreciate that this question matters. It matters a lot. There's a lot at stake, we sense, to us being able to figure this out and answer this question accordingly. It matters, first of all, for those of us who actually profess faith in Jesus Christ. It matters for our own spiritual journey and development. Take a look at what the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1 about how spiritual growth works. 
He says in verse five, to make every effort to respond to God's promises, to, to react to all the goodness that God's poured out in your life through Jesus Christ. He says to supplement or to build on or to add to your faith a generous provision of moral excellence, right living, and moral excellence with knowledge, meaning learning, and knowledge with self-control, meaning discipline, and self-control with patient endurance, meaning consistency, and patient endurance with godliness, meaning Christ-likeness. That's how spiritual growth looks. But then he says, add to that brotherly affection, and on top of brotherly affection, add love for everyone. Do you see the sequence of how spiritual growth works in a human heart? Eventually, a person's faith blossoms to the point where they develop what Peter describes as brotherly affection. A sincere, deep, authentic love for people who are part of their family and tribe. A, a common kind of unity and heart for people of faith. But then, Peter says, your faith really matures... When it grows beyond just extending hospitality, grace, affection, and love to your own kind. But distinguishes a love for everyone as a different group of people than brotherly affection. A love for everyone goes beyond your own family and tribe. And what Peter's talking about here is the very thing we're trying to discuss today. Moving beyond the kind of love that loves conditionally on people sharing your beliefs and instead creates the kind of hospitality, the kind of generous space in your heart and in your dialogue to be able to engage people in loving, authentic, accepting, embracing relationship even if they never share your worldview. This matters, gang, to your and my personal spiritual development. It also matters to our community, to our church. Because one of the things that we've been sensing as a leadership that's been you know, giving us the sense that God wants us to move into this direction is that this whole kind of assumption of us has been changing radically over the years. When I think back even to a generation ago and how homogeneous a church community was, how much it thought the same, kind of valued the same, basically was into the same stuff, same economic background, all that kind of stuff. It was very, it was very similar, very like each other. You know, these days we have just, you know, exponentially more diversity in our community. And in a lot of ways, as we've learned to engage and develop relationships with the poor and the marginalized, you know, we've realized that they don't all see life the same as you or I do. And even these days as we're engaging with our coworkers and classmates and friends and family and, and neighbors and teammates outside of a life of faith, and we engage in conversation, you, you know what we're discovering? That, you know, they're just not blank slates waiting to be given the four spiritual laws or the, the statement of faith here at Southridge where they can kind of sign off and all of a sudden believe everything that we believe. You know, they're asking questions and they're bringing to the table different worldviews. Same is true with the next generation. Long past is the day when the next generation is just kind of growing up, you know, assuming that the way our parents see the world is, is the way that they're going to inherit and automatically adopt. I talk with them. They ask questions. They challenge thinking. They, they've got different beliefs than what you or I may bring to the table. 
In fact, all of us bring different beliefs to the table. And we've got to realize that even within the existing community of faith that God has given us the gift to enjoy, there's a tremendous amount of diversity when it comes to how we understand life and faith. Now, it, it struck me again this week how important it is for us to appreciate this and be able to love each other, you know, without the condition of believing and agreeing on all the same things. I, I got an email from someone uh, who was following up on the series that we've just had, uh, looking at how to better understand or how to better approach the Bible. And certainly, you know, we've made some, some jokes about how, you know, Mike, especially in the five of the six weeks that he taught, has taken us uh, into some, you know, fairly radical and uncomfortable places. And this person asked me in this email, they said, you know, if through prayer, and diligent reflection and conversation with as many people as I can. If, if I don't arrive at the exact same places and conclusions that Mike did, they said this, is that okay? And I wanted to shout to them, absolutely it's okay. And I know that Michael said that repeatedly every single time he taught this last message. You don't have to agree with me which may have actually been the single most radical thing that he said the entire series. But I want you to consider what the Apostle Paul teaches in Romans chapter 14, where he says this to the Christian church in that day. He says, don't argue with believers about what they think is right or wrong, presuming that you disagree and think different things are right or wrong. He says instead, let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. Let us aim for harmony in the church and build each other up. Paul assumes that outside of the person of Jesus, you know, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his existence today by his spirit, you know, outside of the person and work of Jesus, you know, there's a lot of room for people to believe different things, to interpret the scriptures differently, to draw different conclusions about even very important faith matters. And for some time, I've sensed that this passage that I just read from, in Romans chapter 14 and then into Romans chapter 15, this may arguably be the single most prophetic passage to the kind of at least first world church or the North American kind of Western church in the 21st century. I would almost go so far as to say that. In fact, I'm going so far as to say that, so I'm saying that. I, I, I feel that. I, I feel like this is the most important thing for us to get. If you want to do personal study on anything these days, personally dig into Romans 14 and 15 and try to understand it better because it's Paul teaching the church of the first century to be able to agree and unify and love each other in spite of disagreement about some very significant things. To try to love each other without the condition of needing to share beliefs about everything. And you'll notice that the goal that he says you're to, supposed to aspire to is the goal of harmony. He says, let there be harmony in the church. You know what harmony takes? Harmony takes different notes existing at the same time. Harmony can't happen if every note is the same. It's not a product of sameness. It's a product of diversity. And I want to give you, us the freedom and encourage us in the future to move in a direction where we can, we, we can create a more generous, hospitable space for the kind of dialogue that loves and embraces and curiously learns from each other as we disagree. 
and is more than okay handling one another, even as a community of faith, interpreting and seeing things differently. This matters for our own spiritual growth. It matters for the health and the unity and harmony of our church. And then most of all, probably, it matters because there's a world that's watching, even around here in the Niagara region. In fact, this past summer, if you were reading the newspaper, you know that the word Christian appeared in the headlines a number of times when uh, an area politician made some offensive comments toward the LGBTQ community. And what kept the word Christian uh, in the headlines were not so much those comments. It wasn't so much what was said. It was what wasn't said. Because for some time, there was kind of a deafening silence you know, in the political arena and the business community and in the church. And, and for some time, this kind of film lingered across Niagara, it lingered across the headlines, you know, equating Christianity with an exclusive, condemning, judgmental form of non-love. And, you know, of all the eras that we found ourselves in, that, that, that film, that that feel kind of reminded me of the very first era where I was invited to become part of this. And a story I've told many times about a conversation I had with my dad that was critical to God launching me into vocational ministry some 18 years ago. I was talking about faith with my dad and he was telling me a story about his day at work when he was mediating a, a teacher's strike as a school administrator and the self-professed Christian parents of that particular school were spending the day driving by throwing tomatoes at the striking teachers, if you can believe that. And I've said back in the day, I've said many other times over the last almost two decades that you know, my whole goal in getting into ministry my whole goal was to give my life to helping make a church look enough like Jesus and, and far enough away from tomato throwing that people like my dad would run to God and not from him. In a lot of ways, to be totally blunt, the only thing I've tried to do in this church community for almost two decades is to get people who profess to call themselves Christians to stop throwing tomatoes. And you know what the sad part is? is that even lately, with certain groups of people who happen to believe different things than maybe you or I, the name of Christianity is still associated with kind of a tomato-throwing, you know, judgmental, non-acceptance, condemning, non-love. And at the end of the day, all I'm wondering, gang, is when, when we're going to be able to change that. What is it going to take to change that? What will God have to do in our hearts, in a community like ours, to enable us, at the very least, to become the kind of people whose posture in the way that we relate to people speaks louder than any position we might hold on theology or a tenet of faith? What's it going to take for our character in the way that we relate to people to speak louder than our personal faith convictions on subjects that matter to us? And what's it going to take for people to know us more for a behavior of love, of hospitality, of generosity, of dialogue, of acceptance, of encouragement, and of harmony? More than whatever it is we happen to uniquely believe. 
Gang, that's what we're sensing. God wants this next era of our lives and church to be about. To actually learn to love people in a way that isn't contingent on them ever seeing life, the world, or even faith the same way as you or me. If in fact we even see it the same. But to engage with people in a radical, unconditional love. What I'll call beyond belief. We don't think that this era is going to you know, end quickly. And we certainly don't think it's going to be easy. You know, there'll be bumps along the road and challenges for each of us. Um, I think at the same time, though, we believe that God is in it and is leading ahead of us into this new chapter in the life of our church. In fact, uh, referring again to this guy that I had lunch with years ago, this gay man. He actually has a name. His name is Ted Meradian. And uh, if you were following the stories in the news in the past couple of months, you'll know that Ted was really at one time the only and certainly the earliest person to kind of stand up and to say anything in response to these condemning statements toward the LGBTQ community. And since then, uh, Ted's been back now writing a few articles in the newspaper. And uh, last week, he actually forwarded me the most recent article that he wants to submit. When I read it, my jaw almost dropped because it was the story of this guy that he had lunch with who's a pastor. A and the story of this pastor and his church and how they're trying to learn a non-judgmental, accepting, kind of radical love in the same way that Christ loved. And he writes that, you know, he's not sure whether we'll ever believe the same things, but he watches us wrestle with how to love people better and has hope that, you know, we can continue to not only be friends, but can continue to make a difference moving forward. I'm telling you, this article, it freaked me out reading it at first because I, I'm highly media averse and I love when Southridge just kind of flies under the radar. But at the same time, when I read it, I, I thought, you know, maybe God could use this to, to paint a bit of a different flavor of people who profess a faith in Christ. Maybe God could start to open a, a door of conversation, open a window of opportunity, and start to open the kind of spaces for the kind of dialogue where we can practice this dynamic of non-conditional, unbelieving the same things, acceptance, embrace, and love. And I'm wondering today, on Vision Day 2015, whether you would be willing to join me and our church leadership in that kind of adventure. You know, because it's going to take all of us, not just uh, a few leaders around here, if we're actually going to give that flavor off to the Niagara region where God has placed us. So as we close today, we're going to embark on a, on a bit of an exercise that I hope is not only, you know, deeply spiritual and, and special, but also very significant for each of us at a personal level. All of you have been given a card. And on that card, I want you to think about the name of a person that you may up to this point have had difficulty loving fully in the way that Jesus would love you. The kind of person who, who probably bears some different beliefs than you on faith, on politics, on education, parenting, finances, diet, whatever, that you've been kind of polarized with. Maybe it's an individual at your workplace or your classroom or in your neighborhood. Maybe it's a people group. But I want you to spend some time in a moment reflecting on who that is and then write down their name. And then once we've all written down names on these cards across all of our locations, our host pastors are going to say some prayers 
to offer some prayers for all of these kinds of people. People who see the world differently because of cultural backgrounds and different convictions and different choices about the way that they live. We're going we're gonna to pray on behalf of them and then we're going to pray on behalf of our own hearts. And after we do, we're going to give some space for individually, as God prompts, to come to the front of your location, to one of the stations that you can see have been set up to take communion, to participate in what we call the Lord's Supper, and to take a piece of bread and to take a cup of juice as representative of Jesus' body that was broken for us and blood that was shed for us. And as you do, I want you to bring that card up and place the name that you've written on that card in the basket on the communion table. And we're hoping that that's a very sacred moment representative of us trading with God, kind of exchanging the limitations of our capacities to love with God's limitless, non-conditional love that the scriptures say he poured out on us while we were still enemies. And as the taste of the bread and the taste of the juice still, you know, flows down your throat, I want you to think about what it would take to become the kind of person whose posture speaks louder than any position you hold, whose character is what you're known for more than the convictions that you possess, and whose behavior defines you more than a belief system. Because I believe that we have it in us. I believe that God will be faithful to us to widen our hearts yet again. And I'm excited to see what he's going to do as you and I learn to become those people and learn to become that church together that can literally love people beyond belief. So let's reflect on that now.